Familiarity with Jesus breeds faith. Let us pray. God, our Father, as we come now to this passage of Scripture that records the events of Jesus going home to Nazareth and being rejected and finding great faithlessness there, our Father, show us that being familiar with Jesus should not lead to rejection, but for us it leads to greater faith. We thank you, Father, for the ministry of the Word. We, I pray for this preacher for faithfulness. I pray for us that you would be pleased to enable us to faithfully hear the Word of God. We trust you, Holy Spirit, to work it into our hearts. And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 6 as we read, as I will read for us, the first six verses. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Hosus, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could not do mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The pastor of the church that Renee and I attended when we were in seminary, during a sermon, recited this truism, familiarity breeds contempt. Now, he was preaching with regards to the relationships of husbands to wives and vice versa, and he cautioned us to be mindful as spouses that we can so easily take the one we know the most of whom we are the most familiar with contempt. That sounds like a very strong word, but we could take them for granted. We could disrespect them. We could be condescending towards them. Familiarity breeds contempt. It's not only true as a, as a marital problem. It's also true in all of our relationships with our children, with our, our work colleagues, with even people here at church. The people that we know the most, the most familiar are, we we need to be careful not to take them for granted, not to be contemptuous towards them. And this warning also applies to our relationship with Christ. Mark chapter 5 depicts faith. So we've been working through Mark 5, and we're just now entering Mark chapter 6. But remember Jairus and the woman that was hemorrhaging and how they trusted Jesus and he brought about healing. Just previously to that event was the man in Gadara that had, you know, the many demons. And he trusted Jesus and Jesus cast those demons out. And then even at the beginning of chapter 5, we see the Jesus and his disciples on the Sea of Galilee. And during the storm, his, his disciples had to put their faith in Jesus to come 
the storm. Well, if chapter 5 is entitled the faith chapter, then chapter 6 may very well be entitled the faithless, the lack of faith chapter. Now, at the end of chapter 6, we will see that there is an example of faith, so it ends, ends well. But I would suggest to you today in Nazareth, we see faithlessness. Uh, we, we will see Herod demonstrating uh, faithlessness. We will see the disciples who were being sent out to people who would be faithless. And then we'll see the disciples themselves even struggling with trusting Jesus. And so we want to zero down on this situation in Nazareth that the townspeople, even members of Jesus' own family, who had watched him grow up as a little boy running around the streets of Nazareth, whatever that was like, they were very familiar with him, but they showed contempt for him upon his homecoming, even to the point of rejecting him in unbelief. And so we'll consider the, the content of Jesus' teaching. It starts out with Jesus' teaching in the synagogue. And then we will consider the response of those who heard him being offended by Jesus and that taking offense resulting in rejecting Jesus in unbelief, a rather serious matter. So first, what, what did Jesus read and what did he teach there at the synagogue service? In our old location, if I'm remembering correctly, so some of you old-timers here at Covenant can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe in the pulpit there, this was the location on University, it was University in R Street, there was a little plaque in the pulpit that said, sir, we want to see Jesus. And that plaque was based on John chapter 20 and verse 21, where the Greeks came and asked Philip, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And so that plaque in that pulpit was to remind the preacher that when God's people come to worship and sit under the preaching of God's word, they come to encounter Jesus. And the preacher has the privilege and the great responsibility in faithfully preaching the Lord Jesus Christ from the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In our text today, the congregation did not come seeking Jesus, but they sure saw him. They encountered him in the flesh, and they encountered him in all places in the Old Testament. Our Lord and the Twelve made the 20-mile journey from Capernaum, which we've been saying is the ministry headquarters of Jesus during his Galilean ministry, so that 20-mile journey to, from Capernaum to Nazareth. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, obviously we'll celebrate that here in a month or so. But he grew up in Nazareth, that was his hometown, Nazareth in Galilee. On this particular Sabbath, as was Jesus' custom, he was at the synagogue, he was part of the service there, look at verse 2 of our text. And the rulers of the synagogue, one like Jairus that from our text, our passage from last week, these synagogue rulers would assign a teacher to read a text of Scripture, and they would stand when they would read Scripture, and then the teacher would sit down, the congregation would remain standing, so you guys have it easy. But the teacher would sit down, and then he would expound upon that passage that, that he read. He would give a, a, a teaching, or we could say even 
a sermon. Now, Mark's account is incredibly brief here. Just simply, we just assume that one of these synagogue rulers asked Jesus to take the scroll to read scripture and to sit down and teach and preach on it. Uh, and th- then those who heard him, though, that's the response to what Jesus said was remarkable. They were astonished. What was the text? What was the theme of Jesus' sermon? In the parallel account in the Gospel of Luke, we are made aware of the text that Jesus read and the content of his sermon or the theme of his sermon. And you can find this in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 22. And the text that, that Jesus read at that particular synagogue service was what ruling elder Bob read. Just a few moments ago from Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Luke's account ends here. And then... Isaiah goes on, in the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. And so after reading this text, our Lord sat down and he gave a sermon. He gave an exposition of what he had just read. Now I know Derek and I really are somewhat given to three-point sermons. Every now and then we'll throw a two-pointer in or maybe a five-pointer But I believe, and this is just conjecture on my part, but I think Jesus had a one-point sermon. Don't get any ideas. Don't say, be like Jesus, Tim. This, I believe, was his, his one and only point. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Those who heard were absolutely astonished. The last part of verse 2. Because when Jesus said that, what Jesus was saying is that I fulfill what Isaiah prophesied in his day. I am the one on whom the Spirit has rested, the anointed one, the Messiah, Isaiah 6 and verse 1. Jesus said, I am the one who fulfills this prophecy. I am the one who is bringing the kingdom. I am the one who is inaugurating the saving reign of God, that God's people would be saved. Sir, we want to see Jesus. Well, the townspeople of Nazareth saw Jesus. And from their perspective, what they saw was this little kid running around the streets of Nazareth some 30 years earlier. I mean, how could this this boy from Nazareth, this common Man, this Nazarene makes such a statement. I think in their mind, their astonishment probably was more like they, it, they were thinking this was absurd that, that he would claim what he has claimed. If there ever was a jaw-dropping moment, this, this might be one in the Scriptures. Well, we should be astonished over the claims that Jesus makes, the, the true biblical understanding of Jesus, but certainly not like the Nazarenes were. 
our astonishment should be able to, uh, over the reality of the good news that indeed he has fulfilled that prophecy in Isaiah 61. He has graciously bound up our broken hearts. He has set us free from that prison of sin, that bondage to sin, Satan, and death. That he has brought his saving work to this world through the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you astonished at who Jesus really is as God's Messiah, Savior, and Lord? Secondly, why does Jesus' teaching cause these people in Nazareth, including some of his own family, to take offense? Have you ever experienced listening to someone make some kind of a sales pitch or some kind of a claim? Maybe you, you went to a free dinner and they said, come and eat, we'll pay for it. All you have to do is listen through this presentation. They're going on and on and on about this, this vacation that, that you can buy and all of this stuff. And you're sitting there thinking, listening to them going, wow, well, now, wait just a minute. How on earth can that be true? That, that sounds too good to be true. What is the catch? There's always a catch to those things. Okay, I haven't figured that out yet. But the series of questions in verses 3 and 4 really point to the people's astonishment over Jesus' teaching, and it quickly degenerated into skepticism. Look at verse 2. Where did this man get these things? They expressed skepticism over Jesus' source of authority and the credentials to be a teacher of the Scriptures. I mean, how, how could this guy claim to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy as the anointed one? They knew and notice the term they, they use here. They, they knew this man, this guy from Nazareth. He was never educated in the rabbinical school, never went to study under a great rabbi. He had no credentials to teach. They knew he was but a man, the little kid that ran around the streets of Nazareth, who became a carpenter, who was a son, who was a brother in verse 3, they ask, is not this carpenter the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? So the text indicates that Joseph and Mary had at least four sons and at least two daughters. And apparently Joseph had died by this time. But their questions amounted to them saying, wait a minute, this, this can't be right. This sounds too good to be true. Jesus, what, what is the catch? Are you trying to get one over on us? We, we know this man. He's, he's just another guy from Nazareth. He's just a lowly carpenter, a laborer. Likely, he's, he, the reference to Jesus being a carpenter was rather derogatory since a simple carpenter was a lowly laborer laborer. But the two questions that they ask reveal a disconnect in their thinking. This is a guy that we saw grow up in Nazareth who has no rabbinical training, who has no credentials to teach, but wait a minute. He is teaching with profound wisdom, and he is making these claims, not to mention that, but we know that he has power because he's been healing people and casting out demons, and the word is spread all over Galilee, 
how can this be? They ask, what is, what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Do, do you see what they're struggling with? The Jesus they were familiar with, but yet the things that Jesus said and the things that Jesus did, wait a minute, it doesn't add up. You may remember at the beginning of Mark's gospel, we, we learned about Jesus' mission to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God that he inaugurated by his coming, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and calling all to repentance and faith. That was his primary mission. But we also saw that Jesus performed great miracles to attest to his authority to teach and to bring the kingdom. He healed people. He cast out demons. And that was to support his primary mission to preach repentance and faith. And we saw this most profoundly in chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. You, you may remember that during a previous synagogue service, service in Capernaum, Jesus was teaching, and the text says, as one with authority. And at that very moment in the synagogue service, this man begins to make a disruption because he has an unclean spirit, a demon, and Jesus cast out this demon. And here's what the people said, Mark chapter 1, verse 27. They were all amazed so that, that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And, and you, do, do you see the connection between Jesus teaching, casting out demons, and that miracle supporting and attesting to his authority to teach and to preach? Well, this verse shows that Jesus' primary mission was teaching and preaching, the miracles came alongside his support. When the townspeople of Nazareth heard the wisdom of Jesus in his teaching and also the knowledge they had about the power that Jesus had, had been displaying and performing many miracles, many of which we have already considered in this sermon series, should they not have at least stopped and thought there might be a strong possibility that Jesus really is who he says he is, the one who fulfills the prophecy. While our text today clearly affirms Jesus' true, uh, true human nature, it's all those four questions are really pointing to Jesus as a man. And, and the first question in verse 2, this man, Jesus' true divine nature remained hidden such that the townspeople who knew this little kid running around Nazareth, did not have access to the knowledge that he was also fully God. But his, his wise teaching and his power in performing miracles should at least given them pause, not to quickly jump to skepticism that, de that degenerated into rejection of Jesus outright. Instead of evaluating Jesus in terms of his wisdom and power, they were offended by Jesus' claim. They were scandalized is the actual meaning of that. And they were caused to stumble. The gospel is offensive, isn't it? It is scandalous. The gospel is oftentimes to people a stumbling block. Isaiah 8.14 refers to a rock of offense. Isaiah 28.16 refers to a cornerstone. 
Both of these passages together teaches that God sovereignly establishes the cornerstone, the foundation of faith, and that many will be offended because of it and stumble over it. It becomes a rock of offense. And the Apostle Paul in Romans 9.33 and also the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2, the passage that we've already read today, take up these passages in Isaiah. For instance, Paul says in 9.33, as it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And then 1 Peter 2, 6 through 8, for it stands in Scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Jesus, who was to be a foundation and cornerstone of faith, can become a rock of offense and a stumbling stone for those who stumble into unbelief. Being familiar with Jesus may be offensive because Jesus' mission means all men and women, all humanity is a sinner in need of a Savior. May be offensive because Jesus' mission means no person can save themselves. They need a Savior. It may be offensive because, hey, it is folly to believe in this man who lived 2,000 plus years ago. It's absurdity to believe in, in some God who is in charge of all things. After all, man is the measure of all things, right? Familiarity with Jesus, if that familiarity is not based in the Scriptures, and if that person has not been enabled by God, will breed contempt for they lack the spiritual ability to believe what Jesus says. Does familiarity with Jesus cause you to take offense? I want to now look at this third point and really look at the remedy if today you're sitting here thinking, yeah, you know what, the gospel is kind of offensive to me. I think this third point gives the remedy to that. The consequence of taking offense over Jesus and his teaching is rejecting him in unbelief. I know individuals who have been raised in the church, who have heard the gospel, who have been taught the, the truth of the Bible, who seem to be growing Christians and, and have come to a place of being offended by Jesus, not wanting, having, not wanting anything to do with Jesus or his church, and don't even want people to say, I'm praying for you. They have stumbled over Jesus. He, to them, is a rock of offense. They have stumbled and tripped and fallen into unbelief. And, and what, what the end of this passage tells us is there are disastrous consequences to falling into unbelief. The, Nazareth, the folks of Nazareth rejected Jesus, and the consequences of it are shown in this saying 
in verse 4, a prophet is without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. By saying this, our Lord reminds the townspeople of Israel's history in the Old Testament of rejecting God's prophets. And God's saying, okay, he sends the prophets elsewhere, sometimes even to Gentile lands. And an example that we might turn to, though we don't have time today, is the prophets Elijah and Elisha. And this helps us understand in verses 5 and 6 what the Lord is saying there. We should not read these verses to mean that Jesus all of a sudden is unable to perform miracles in Nazareth. That can't possibly be the case. No, but he chose not to do them. Why? Because of their unbelief. In other words, our Lord was not going to force his miracles on those who had already rejected him, didn't want to have anything to do with him. They were offended by him. Another way to think about this is that the gospel is not coercive. Those who do not want Christ do not get him. That's another way to put it. Nazareth rejected Jesus in unbelief, and so Jesus left and continued his ministry in other towns. That is a disastrous consequence to rejecting Jesus. In chapter 5, Jesus performed a miracle in Gerizines. Remember that? This Gentile land. And he cast out the many demons that this poor man had. And what did Jesus do? The, 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 now, uh, the, the man now without demons wanted to go with Jesus. And Jesus said, no, go to your hometown. See the... Jesus went to his hometown, and they rejected him. Previously, Jesus had sent this man in Gadara to his hometown. And the gospel not only spread there, Jesus said, go, go tell the people that you live with in your hometown of the mercies that you have received from me. And he did. And the gospel spread there and all throughout the Decapolis, the, the, the entire region. And that gives us a sense of why Jesus marveled at the lack of faith in Nazareth, his hometown, verse 6. And here's the point. Nazareth was privileged. They had all the benefits of the fruit of Jesus' Galilean ministry. The word had gone out, and they rejected Jesus. Nazareth did not want Jesus. They didn't want the Jesus that showed up that day at the synagogue some 30 years after he was running around the city streets. And this helps us see that we need to be careful what we want. Their familiarity with Jesus and their spiritual blindness and hard-heartedness resulted in not wanting Jesus. And they got what they wanted. Jesus left to minister elsewhere. Brothers and sisters, be very careful what you want. As I need to be very careful what I want. Consider the consequences of rejecting Jesus and Jesus continuing his ministry elsewhere. The good news was not preached in Nazareth. The brokenhearted remained brokenhearted. The captives remained in bondage. Those who mourn remained uncomforted. The sick remained in their sickness. Sinners remained in their sin, unpardoned, destined for hell. 
This passage emphasizes man's responsibility to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and not reject him. God is the primary cause of salvation. We read that in our profession of faith this morning, Romans 8, 28 and following. He sovereignly chooses, that is, elects who will be glorified. That's the end of our salvation. And he sovereignly establishes the means to accomplish it, the outward call of the gospel, preaching, evangelism, regeneration, repentance, and faith, justification, adoption, sanctification, and perseverance. God is sovereign over saving sinners. But his he is the primary cause, but that does not negate the secondary cause, which is man is responsible to respond in repentance and faith and not reject Jesus. The question for us today is, does our familiarity with Jesus lead to unbelief or does it lead to belief? We began by saying that familiarity breeds contempt it sure did in the case of Jesus being rejected by his hometown. Their rejection of, of Jesus, the Jesus they knew, should cause us to seek Jesus and not reject him. It should spur us on to seek Jesus and want to become more familiar with him. For one who has a changed heart, and the spiritual ability becoming more familiar with Jesus breeds faith. By God's grace, may we endeavor to become more familiar with Jesus as he is revealed in both the Old and New Testaments. That's the key point here. By grace, our biblical familiarity understanding of who Jesus is breeds faith. Let us commit ourselves to the reading and studying of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the Lord Jesus and his saving work in our lives. Father, I pray if there is one here today who is a skeptic, Lord, work in their lives Move them to speak to someone. Melt their skepticism away. If there's one here who has outright rejected you, oh, Father, it's never too late for you to work and to turn someone's life around, even those who seem to be the most hostile towards the Lord Jesus. Father, I pray that you would pour out your grace on all of us, either to bring us to Christ or to grow us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.